0: welcome to the 22nd episode of the known pleasures podcast this is your go-to podcast for all things post-punk and new wave from the late 70s to early 80s if you'd like to listen to the songs featured in this podcast just click on the link and it will take you to a spotify playlist created just for this episode now here's mark to introduce the subject of today's podcast
1: At first glance, the Cars might seem an unlikely choice for a post-punk dissection, but with lead singer Rick Ocasek's recent passing and our determination to throw you the odd curveball every now and again, we thought they deserved reappraising. While their US contemporaries like Blondie, Talking Heads and Devo might fit more neatly into the conversation, the Cars were arguably the first to smuggle new wave into the mainstream, with wry songs about best friends' girls, letting the good times roll and finding just what you needed. One record company ad for the band in the 80s called it top-down music in a hard top world. Although now mostly remembered for a batch of chrome-plated singles and Rick's Fright, Wig and Shades combo, pop the hood and you'll find enough futuristic synths and angular stabs of guitar along with those hit melodies to more than qualify the Cars as one of the leaders of the US new wave, a kind of post-punk pop. So put the top down, your pedal to the middle and we'll take a spin with the Cars.
2: I'm disappointed that you didn't manage to squeeze a few more um, car analogies in. There. Well, I kind of was following, windscreen wipers. Uh, following they're, their lead, they were respectable. They kind
1: of, of car. weren't shy about that stuff from the marketing <laughs> of the band. So I thought I, you know, go along for the ride.
2: Nice. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Just came to me that one. All right. Well, excellent. Excellent. So, so the Cars,
1: well, let, can I just say, mm. why, why are we talking about the Cars first and foremost? Mm. Before we get into the background of them, I reckon it's a worthy, a worthy question. Like, Why do we think they're worth talking about?
0: Mm. Just quickly. I would say they're a new wave band like any other. Because if you look at American music at that time, they stood out, I think. Mm. They were unusual. They were quirky. They used synths. Probably not as quirky as, say, XTC, but mm. I think they're a valid inclusion into the canon. Mm. Yes. Well,
1: <laughs> I think they experimented enough outside of the singles and stuff as well. We'll talk about that later. But they, mm. they were quite mm. sort of open to, to trying different things. But, yeah, people remember them for those singles, but there's actually a lot more to them than, mm. than those great singles. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So yeah. We should go back to the beginning, or at least their beginning. Yeah.
2: Well, we go back to um, the Second World War. For for you going to go a that far. This is going to go really. So, long. This is how far back Rick Okasek. See, this was a question that I wanted to ask. I've uh, most of my life, I would have said Okasek.
1: I was saying it up until I was corrected. Mm. Well, mm. actually,
0: in the intro, then, Mark, you said Okasek, but it's actually Okasek. Yeah.
1: Oh, okay. Well, I'm just kind of halfway there.
0: <laughs> it was an homage to trying to pronounce it correctly. Yeah, yeah. I'm only saying that because when they were recently installed. Inducted. Inducted. Installed is good. Air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when they recently were reversed back into the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, the guy from The Killers, uh, Brandon Flowers. Yep. Mm-hmm. He admonished the crowd and said, you've all been saying it wrong all these years, it's yeah.
2: Okasik. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's where I got it from, so I'm assuming he's correct. I'm just going to call him Rick.
2: Yeah. For the from now on, of the podcast. <laughs> the big O.
0: <laughs> the big O. <laughs>
2: yeah, so the Second World War, 1944, which is, you know, how far back Rick Ocasic goes. He was ancient in kind of post-punk terms. Grew up in Baltimore, mm-hmm. uh, moved to Cleveland when he was 16, which happens to be where the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is, is situated. Okay. Uh, his father was a systems analyst at NASA, which sounds, is that is that a cool job? It sounds like a pretty cool job. Yeah. Uh, um, Space program, come on. But he might have been doing something boring at NASA. Well,
1: let's say it was exciting.
2: Around about the same time, actually three years later, Benjamin Orr, who was born uh, uh, he was Polish-Russian background? Uh, yep. Something along those yeah, lines? Russian-Czech Russian parents. He was known as Benny Eleven Letters by his friends. (laughs) (laughs) That just
0: rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it?
2: Ultimately, Rick Okasek and Ben Orr met in Cleveland in 1965 and first formed a band in 1968. So Rick was 24 before he formed his first band. They formed a band called Id Nirvana or ID Nirvana. Then they relocated to Boston in the early 1970s and that's really, I think, where the story starts Ben used to book bands
0: for his college and he went to see Rick's band. This was in 1967 and that's kind of how they got together there. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, they played Columbus, Ohio and Ann Arbor, Michigan and they uh, relocated to Boston but um, I just want to make the point that the first band that Rick Ocasek saw when he went to Boston were the Modern Lovers. Right. And we will come back to that later. Big influence. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah,
2: yeah. It was an interesting music scene in Boston around that time because there were quite a few bands who remain quite well known like Jay Giles' band. Aerosmith Aerosmith. were around that time, a band called Boston, believe it or not, from Boston, Boston. into that extremely fertile scene. Not really my cup of tea overall in terms of the music, but some really substantial kind of prominent bands and modern lovers who were coming at it from a completely different Mm. kind of quirkier, rougher angle. Okay. Well, at this point, they formed Milkwood. Yeah. So Rick O'Kasek
0: and Benjamin Orr. Just go Rick. <laughs> OK, well... Rick ben. Uh, so Milkwood were very much in the style of Crosby, Stills and Nash, this kind of West Coast folk thing. Mm. But it's really interesting to hear, as you can see how great their voices are together, but uh, mm. you've also witness how far away they are from the cars.
3: And I ask you one more time...
2: But similar in a sense in terms of kind of good songwriting skills nice melodies Oh et yeah th- this
0: was where their songwriting skills would have been honed I guess.
2: Yeah the the one song of theirs that I came across on on YouTube With You With Me mm. was a song that I would have liked if I'd heard it from Simon and Garfunkel or you know whoever so Yeah yeah, yeah I think they were they were definitely good at what they did.
0: To me it didn't sound like a band that um, were about to make it big but you can certainly see the seeds of yeah, uh, yeah, of what came yeah. later.
2: And then they formed Richard and the Rabbits. <laughs> Because because they thought, you know what, Milkwood is too good a name for a band. You know, like that's actually a pretty decent name for a band. Let's try Richard and the Rabbits. And I haven't been able to come across any of Richard and the Rabbits no. songs, but uh, Rick claims that they were a good band. I'm <laughs> sorry. sorry. I'm sure that's good would. enough for me. And then they formed, well, they were a folk duo. And then it was Captain Swing. Yeah, and then
0: Elliot Easton came on board. And by the way, I can't rave enough about how much of a great guitarist this guy was. But they all uh, got together and formed Captain Swing. So hang on, we've got, when you say all, that's the
1: four of them and the the drummer that didn't make it.
2: Everyone, but... Except the drummer. Except
1: uh, David Robinson. He didn't come on board till after the first demos.
2: One of the extraordinary things about Elliot Easton, who I think is an unusually... Um, creative and diverse guitarist, Mm. is that around about this time, I don't know exactly when, he switched from being right-handed to being left-handed. Yes. (laughs) Which is an astounding thing to do. His manager thought he would look more distinctive in a band as a left-handed guitarist because the Beatles look great with the left-handed, right-handed guitarist kind of Combo, Mm. and it would be good for his career to be left-handed, which is
1: just just uh, do it, just make the change. It's easy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, how how hard could it be? Yeah, that's a hugely impressive thing to Mm. do after playing right-handed for for Well, maybe he wasn't that good as a right-hander. Yeah, and then
1: when he started playing left-handed, he got really interesting because he couldn't quite manage it.
2: Yeah, well, that's that's certainly (laughs) that's certainly possible.
1: (laughs) So we've got the makings of the cars at this point. What year are we talking?
0: Seventy-five-ish. Yeah, Yeah, seventy-five-ish. And
2: what do we make of Captain Swing? Have you heard any of that stuff?
0: (laughs) Yes. uh, uh, there is a uh, very early version of Bye Bye Love, which wound up on the first album. I can't do this way much longer, expect to survive. And uh, it's unusual, actually. But the other songs that I've heard remind me of Steely Dan. I mm. thought Steely Dan, yeah. Yeah, and... Um, and even Boston, actually. Boston. I, I kept thinking of the Atlanta Rhythm Section. I know you guys are going to say, who the hell are the Atlanta Rhythm Section?" Yeah. They were a band that relied heavily on the Fender Rhodes piano, and that's what features highly in these. It was of its time. Yeah, yeah. Certainly well, nothing yeah. groundbreaking. Mm. No, no, no,
2: not at all. But it slotted really neatly into all the other stuff that was going on in Boston. mm at the time, apart from the Modern Lovers, yeah. you know it was it was you know solid sort of mainstream rock, mm. and again they did it well without having a distinctive enough sound or, mm. for that matter, a distinctive enough look to kind of get cut through. What
1: were you going to say about the Modern Lovers?
0: I thought when I listened to the, uh, especially the first Cars album, I hear a bit of Modern Lovers in their sort of poppier songs because if you listen to the modern lovers it's real sort of simple three chord stuff Mm. he was an odd singer Mm. jonathan Richmond, and i think rick he was interested in pop music but he was also an artist or he he was also interested in art Mm. and he he would have seen especially when he first saw the modern lovers i reckon he would have thought this is unlike anything else Mm. and i think that was always in the back of his head that he would want to do something that's a little bit different
1: well he one of his Famous quotes is that you know he loved the Velvet Underground and the Carpenters, mm. and you might think they're completely different things, but he he was you know he basically loved pop music, but he also liked really weird kind of interesting stuff mm. too. Mm. Mm. So I that's where I see the Cars as being an interesting proposition. In any case, yeah. we're at the point now where they're starting to, to to play with more or less the lineup that that we know, mm. yeah. and uh, and the songs I suppose as well.
0: Mm. Well, should we touch upon the WBCN disc jockey?
1: Well, that's the, yeah, They the, the demos that they were, they were mm. gigging a lot. Yeah, and yeah. they did these demos in 77. Yeah, I something think. like that. Yeah. Nine tracks, I think it was. Uh, there were mm-hmm. quite a lot of demos anyway. And this, this um, Maxanne, I think. Maxan
0: Sartori. Yeah. Who I'd like to make the bold claim here that it was because of her that they were successful. Oh, I don't like, think like, there's any doubt about like that. Like solely her. Yeah.
1: Mm. She was playing this, I think she was playing, um, Just What I Needed and another track. Mm. But on tape? Yeah, on tape, on this... It wasn't like a proper (laughs) (laughs) record or... Yeah, on a
2: commercial radio
1: station. She'd also broken a couple of other bands in Boston that way. It was kind of like the time. I guess she she had a bit of influence, I guess. But those demos, if you have a chance to listen to them and they're out there, they're widely available, they're pretty slick and they're pretty well finished. Mm. There's a song on, on there that didn't make it onto the album and I was going to ask you guys about this called Wake Me Up which is a great song, sort of descending bassline thing, really as catchy as anything they ever wrote and it, it, it never made it onto any of their albums.
3: And
2: they were fortunate to get a drummer in, David Robinson. David Robinson, yeah. Who was quite arty and quite conceptual himself mm. and you know, he came up with uh, the, a lot of the artwork For the band. He was kind of the art director of of their uh, logo. Their image, yeah. Yeah. And even, I think it was his idea that they should all wear red, white, and black, or red, white, or black, just to kind of get a really kind of solid band image because Mm. they were an extremely unusual looking bunch of blokes. Mm. Because if you got someone as tall and kind of peculiar looking as Rick, as well as the kind of a slightly nerdy looking keyboard player who's quite short and you've got a heartthrob kind of bass player, it's kind of hard to work out what the kind of collective energy of a bunch of blokes like that was. Mm. They were very clever about how they, they worked with that. Mm. They kind of became characters in a sense, mm. individual characters, whereas previously they were a kind of an amorphous mass, mm. yeah. you know, before <laughs> they got into the outfits and the look. And, that was
0: their original band name,
2: Amorphous <laughs> Mass.
0: <laughs>
1: I don't know who gave them the name. The Cars was
2: it Jonathan? Uh, it was it was David Robinson.
1: Oh, was it? I think Jonathan Richmond gave them the Richard and the Rabbits name. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. He gave them that name. So good on you for that. Mm. <laughs> um, so yeah, they're attracting attention with these gigs and and these demos, and of course the record companies in New York.
2: And three months after their first ever gig as the Cars, they. Got a gig supporting Bob Seeger at a four thousand seat music hall. <laughs> Not many bands three months after the first gig. No. Get mm. get a gig like that. And that was really helpful in terms of the kind of Boston cred.
0: The support band dropped out and the car stepped in. Hmm. And they got a, a standing ovation. Now I don't know what a standing ovation is worth from a Bob Seger crowd, <laughs> but well, it would apparently have been a decent sized crowd.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, Bob Seger very famously said, "Today's music doesn't have the same soul." Yeah, I like yeah. that old time rock and roll. That's what he liked. And here the Cars, we're playing today's music. So, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, obviously the uh, the audience were a bit more accepting. But, yeah, the, apparently record companies started to take notice mm. of them at that point.
2: And then they had to choose a record company mm. and they had to choose between Electra and Arista. Mm. Yeah. Apparently they chose Electra because Electra didn't have any new wave bands mm. and they thought they uh, whereas, stand out. Whereas Arista did. Mm. And so they thought they'll put some, some energy into us. Which as is an
1: interesting way to do it because you think you'd go with a label that had some that might yeah, actually yeah. understand you a bit
0: better. Well, I think the band wound up being quite critical of Elektra because they thought that uh, this record company didn't really know how to promote the band <laughs> and David Robinson for instance didn't like the cover of the first album as he thought it looked like a mm, yeah something that a heavy metal band would have on the cover of their album
1: mm. he wanted something black and white and sort of monochrome <laughs> But the really interesting thing about the fact that they signed to this company is that they go with Roy Thomas Baker as producer.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's huge, isn't it? That's huge. So how do you get him
1: involved? And this is a guy that's done four Queen albums. This is a guy that did Bohemian Rhapsody. And he's going to do this new wave band's album. He must have thought, you know, are you serious? You want me to do this? But he must have heard something in the song. He liked them, yeah. Yeah, obviously, because he did a fantastic job. But, I mean, later that year, after after he did the first Cars album, he went and did Jazz, Queen's album. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fat Bottom Girls and Bicycle Yeah, yeah and all bicycle, that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah. So the guy was, you know, you might call him you know, a pretty seasoned producer doing pretty crazy prog rock.
0: Yeah.
2: And well, then it, he does this kind of stripped yeah, yeah. down,
1: kind of pretty sparse album from the cast, which is, you know, kind of acknowledged as a classic
2: now. And uh, Roy tells the story that, uh, well, I'll read you the quote. I'd been doing Queen, which was kitchen sink overproduction, which I loved. Mm. I'd run into the Sex Pistols because they were working (laughs) over at Wessex Studios. Uh, They were saying the usual, all you bands are going to be gone because you're overproduced and you're all... Pardon the term, fags, and all that. Uh, it was really funny. I thought maybe there's a point where I should be a bit more sparse. This is what what Roy was thinking. So when I did the first cars record, we purposely did it very sparse, but when the Harmony vocals come in, mm. there are as many vocals there as there were in a Queen record, which yes. is really interesting. And you can hear it too. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and he says the only difference is it was in and then it was gone. And in Good Times Roll, he says it was is a classic for that. When they sing the words huge and then it's gone and everything's back to sparse again and that's the kind of essence of mm. the car's sound really mm. the
1: or, yeah the genius of that first album in particular has a lot more of that on it than the subsequent albums mm. there's mm. not the mass harmonies that you you had
0: mm. on this yeah. Album. yeah that's what it's like it's like jonathan richmond minimalism and then all of a sudden all of these layers of, yeah. of, of yeah. vocals and guitars as well all those mm. guitar parts that he was playing it became a unique thing i think
1: Released in June 1978, I should say. So okay, we're into the first album? Yeah, well, I think we have to be because... um because yep, we're there. Because we're there. I just want to say about the first album, and maybe you're going to say the same thing. If ever there's been an album that released three singles and the first three songs in <laughs> the album, A Good Times Roll, Best Friends Girl and Just What I Need It, and they are three absolute stunning killer mm. singles that you just go, well, these guys have been doing this a long time and they know what they're doing. But then... On the fourth track, they really they have "I'm in touch with your world," which is a really strange. It's an odd song. The devo very first kind the of very song. The very
0: first chord, I can't work out what it is. It's
1: it's, real, it's like Roxy Music or something. It's just weird and you would kind of go, maybe as a fan of the, the first three songs you hear that and you go, well, mm. God, I don't like this much. Like it was really kind of difficult and kind of
0: weird of them yeah. to do that. But the record company resisted that big time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it was great that they did that. And also a lot of people refer to the first Cars album as the best of the cars. Mm. It's like a greatest hits mm. album. Yeah. Because, yeah, as you say, the first three songs... Moving in stereo, which, yeah. was, which was on a, um, a soundtrack of. Fast uh, t- wasn't, no, it, I don't think
1: it was on the soundtrack. It was featured in Fast, it Times was featured at in Fast High, Time, a kind of famous pool sequence. Yeah, but that's yeah. a real prototype, sort of really icy, cold, mm. kind of futuristic sounding track. Mm. I mean, I really like the whole album. I think it's fantastic, but it, I just think it's great that fourth track is completely mm. out of the box. You would almost buy the record, listen to the three songs, and go, "But I really don't like this fourth one." Mm. I yeah, think it's yeah, great, yes. but it's nothing like yeah. this.
2: They were really clever and strategic in the track listing mm. to open with
1: those. They're just knockouts, you know, aren't th- they? Th- those one three songs. The other.
2: I mean the opening five seconds of Good Times Roll is very reminiscent of T-Rex for instance Yeah. Yeah. and so you know you've immediately got people's attention because that was such a great sound and unsurprisingly perhaps um, Baker worked as an engineer on T-Rex's hits so you know he would have known how to To finesse that sound and I should say though that all of um, T-Rex's hits were produced by Tony Visconti who did more than most people think on those (laughs) (laughs) records So, but uh, yeah yeah, like it's an unusually fully realised sound and the album not really my cup of tea because it is quite shiny, kind of polished pop for the most part. It's very precise. It's extremely unrebellious. Mm. Um It's very kind of safe lyrically. It's kind of like Buddy Holly kind of 50s rock and roll in a well, sense. I think he's having a of bit
1: of a wink and a bit of a laugh about a lot of it in the lyrics though.
2: It still kind of feels like having two bob each way, as they say, because it's no more rebellious than Bob Seger. You know, in terms, oh, of, in terms I, I, of in terms of in terms of lyrics, I disagree with that. Yeah, I, I, I think the lyrics, lyrics
1: he's he's being sarcastic and quite wry in, in what he says. It's quite yeah. new wave in that sense.
0: I thought the lyrics were very new wave. Yeah. It's like you know, in movie in stereo, mm. where he says I'm moving in stereo and they they do the stereo pan of his voice. Life's I'm saying, moving in stereo. And I'm shaking like tremolo, and they tremolo his voice. Life's saying, you're shaking like tremolo.
2: That's buried pretty deep in the album, though. Oh, yeah. I'm talking, so, I
1: would say the singles. Let the good times roll. If you listen to the lyrics to that, he's yeah. he's, he's having a laugh with that, like you know, uh, well, as rock and roll should be. He's sort of saying, but it's not really like that. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I know it's not like anarchy in the UK or London's calling, but it is. It is kind of smart and yeah. and clever and the way. Yeah. They just
2: it. Well, I guess I see it as the exact opposite to that, which is just kind it's of going. Like, well, I know pattern. I know the kids are going to lap it up and kind of going, and I hope they do. So it, feel, it feels quite uh, clinical to me.
1: Well, it was a huge success. <laughs> it went, it, what is
2: it, six times platinum yeah. in
1: the US? Great. Yeah. It reached number 18, which was a phenomenal success for yeah. the first album. Yeah, yeah. 18. It, 35 in Australia. I was in England when this came out. It went and to I, number five in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. And I remember those singles really well because they seemed to fit in with the new wave narrative at the time. Mm. They looked yeah. like a new wave band. They look the like a new wave band, yeah. Were yeah. new wave in the way that Elvis Costello and Squeeze and mm. other bands mm. were new wave. They weren't radical, rebellious yeah, yeah. songs mm. but they certainly fit in there and they had a kind of tightness and a sharpness mm. to them. And, and I, uh, I really liked them, I have to admit.
2: This was the only album from the first few albums that spawned any hits in the UK. Mm. Yes, yes, My um, Best Friend's Girl went to number three.
0: Yeah.
1: A lot of the reason for that might have been they very rarely toured outside of the US. I think mm. they played in the UK, you know, a handful of times.
2: From 1978 to 1984, they didn't tour Europe. No, they never came <laughs> to Australia. No, no. Well
1: they were probably too busy, you know, supporting bands, you know, like Kansas, Nugent, uh, <laughs> Sticks, Rainbow Journey. <laughs> they were all bands they supported in 1978, which oh, is just wow. hilarious. Because yeah, yeah, that, that you don't get any more stadium mm. no, no, mullet no, rock no, no, that's than those right. than those sort of yeah. bands.
2: And it's a fantastically well produced pop album for 1978. It's mm. got rich bottom end. Mm. It's it's yeah. got songs, it's got everything. Mm. I think
1: I think if you if you don't like this Album, you're dead inside. <laughs> well,
2: <laughs> I reckon
0: you're not going to be a cars fan, basically. No, no, well, and, and or a, a music fan. Yeah, yeah. Well,
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, I hear what yeah. you're saying,
1: Patrick, but I think it's probably just a bit over your head.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's too intellectual. A bit, it's a tad for you. Too intellectual for me. But the last thing that I would say about the production and about the the fully realized nature of this album is that Devo released their first album around the same time, hmm. and you know. Devo's first album was was like a demo, you know, compared to this album. And I like this album, so, you know, don't get me wrong, but I do feel like they were sick of being in bands that got nowhere. Mm. Rick was 34 years old now. He was older than Neil Young thanks to Justin Ratcliffe for providing me with that piece of information, very helpful. <laughs> um, and they they wanted to be successful and they refined their sound and they were determined to be successful and they worked out a way to be successful.
1: They were the police of American New Wave and that, that, that Rick and mm. Ben were quite old, 34 and 31 respectively. And even 25, 26, 29, the other three members, it's pretty old to be having your first album come mm-hmm. out. So they're probably, you're right, they probably went
0: well, we need to make this work and and they certainly did. It did introduce something that became ubiquitous amongst new wave pop, and that was what the keyboard player referred to as clicky eighth notes, which is that chug, 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 mm. chug sound of the mm. guitars. I mean, it cropped up in Minute Works. Who oh, can, it who became, can it, yeah, it was everywhere. The yeah. Go-Go's, um, mm. that, that big hit. You might head. say was the
1: sound of 80s new wave. Yeah. But the other thing is, Graham, the synth lines are really interesting and unique in this, mm. and I think, Patrick, you're not giving that enough... Uh, respect, because they were qu- quite quirky kind of, I don't even know what sort of synth he was playing, but it sounds of its time, but I, I, that kind mm. of got my interest because I hadn't heard many synths in any of the stuff mm. I'd been listening to, then, outside of the Stranglers,
0: maybe. I put down their whole new wave sound down to Greg Hawke's. Mm. I would say he, out of all of them, was really pushing the envelope, I guess, mm. when it came to, to keyboard sounds, productions. He really made the songs sound, you know, of that time.
1: Yeah. And that was a consistent thing through all mm. the albums mm. too. His well, keyboards were always really interesting. Yeah.
2: The keyboards are consistently really interesting and Greg Hawks definitely doesn't get bogged down in any one sound. So, no. So you never quite know what he's going to come up with. And Elliot Easton on guitar is exactly the same. So he has like a little rock, rockabilly lead break mm. in...
0: um In My Best Friend's Girl. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. What on earth is that doing in this song? Mm. And so whether it's post-punk or whatever, he was always trying to do something interesting and I think those two uh, musicians are you know, are a huge part of the car's sound and a huge part of what's interesting about the cars yeah. on a song-by-song basis. We, we yeah. can agree
0: on that. I think uh, we've already spoken about the difference in their ages. I think it was Elliot Easton who made the point that because they were all different ages and came from different parts of the country, that they, were, uh, they weren't they a band in the traditional sense because um, mm. their record collections were all different. Yeah, and, you know, They didn't all go to school together. So, you know, that little um, guitar riff that you just spoke about in My Best Friend's Girl, it was inspired by the Beatles. I think um, George Harrison did a similar thing in the song called I Will. Oh, I will. So obviously the older members, like, Rick and Benjamin, they would have been listening to a lot of music back in the 60s, which the younger guys probably wouldn't have. So uh, it seemed like all of these disparate, unconnected styles of music probably would have come together on this album. Like, Just What I Needed starts like, do you remember the song by the Ohio Express called Yummy, Yummy, Yummy? I've got love on my tummy. Oh, can I? In my tummy, or is it, on my, is it tummy? In my tummy? I think it's in mm. my tummy. Because on my tummy is probably a movie you watched recently. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, uh, that song. It's, I'll take that out. Don't worry. <laughs> no, I don't. It's, it needs livening up. <laughs> anyway, the song "Just What I Needed" starts off exactly like the Ohio Express song.
2: They were uh, voted Best New Artist in 1978 Rolling Stone Reader's Poll. So Mm -hmm. they were already making a huge mark in kind of mainstream America. They were nominated for Best New Artist at the Grammys Mm. that year and they lost out to A Taste of Honey.
0: That's a great song,
1: though. (laughs) Yeah, but hardly Best New Artist. And (laughs) uh, uh,
2: I had forgotten who A Taste of Honey was, but they... They were a one-hit wonder, I think. Disco uh, uh, boogie oogie, oogie oogie. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. very good. Yeah. You wanted yeah. me to say that. Didn't yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And funnily enough, the spirit of the lyrics of boogie oogie oogie are quite similar to "Let the Good Times Roll." So oh, without okay. the irony, <laughs> I t- I'd suggest. Without the alleged irony, there is the irony in
1: it. Look, the, the thing with the cars is that they were the first to do it. They really had massive success mm. before Blondie, before yeah, Talking yeah. Heads, before mm. Devo, yeah. any of their contemporaries yeah. that they they would see as their contemporaries anyway. And, and the, no. I, w- I was going to say. If the Cars had released their third album first, the second album second, and then the Cars third, they would have a lot more credibility because we'll get to that. But the third album is really quite experimental and quite interesting and dark, whereas this is just greatest hits. And it's still getting played, you know, today yeah, yeah, on, yeah. on FM radio in the yeah, States. Yeah, and all. It, right. it kind of got got over where other things yeah. just didn't. I
3: guess you just what I need.
2: in terms of its influence on the next generation, Best Friends Girl was one of the first songs that Kurt Cobain learned to play. Yes. After his, his Uncle Chuck bought him his first guitar on his 14th birthday and it was also one of the last songs he ever played. Nirvana's last ever gig, they opened with Best Friends Girl. Oh, there you go. Wow. So,
1: so there you are, Patrick. Oh. <laughs> he got it. Are we done with the first album, the
0: debut? Yeah, I just want to also add that. Uh, well, we spoke about the UK <clears throat> didn't really like them, even though they had a hit single. Mm. there. Mm. I just read that uh, Paul Weller reviewed one of the cars' singles, <laughs> and Paul said, uh, "Oh dear, you could melt it down and make an ashtray." <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> that, that, that was as as. as Far as he was going to go there in terms of a compliment.
1: Well, Best Friends' Girl got to number three, according to my... Mm, Yeah, yeah, yeah. ...in the UK, so that's pretty good. I don't know what the album did, but...
0: I think the... uh, When I say the UK didn't like them, I think the critics and whatever didn't seem to... They
2: were a bit suspicious of them. Well, they weren't
0: American.
1: you were thinking New Wave was, as Mm. I said, but it fit in to me. It fit in quite neatly with everything that was going on. that's really
2: interesting, given that, as you say, you, you were in England at the time, you were 13, say, and Graham and I weren't hearing this kind of stuff... On commercial radio. No. In Australia. No. So it's interesting that you would have just slotted it in with. With everything else, yeah. Yeah, with you know, Elvis Costello. Yeah, well, and Squeeze, Elvis whatever else you know, so. that was out that was in the charts at that yeah. time. Uh, for, for what it's worth, uh, this album got to number 29 in the UK. There you go. That's not too so bad. It was, Probably their most successful yeah, album. It, yeah, yeah, it was their most successful album in the UK of yeah. the first few.
1: Well, I think it's a stone-cold classic, as they say. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, Shall we talk about
0: Candio, the second album? Well, Candio is my favourite. Candio.
1: It was released almost to the day a year later, so they're not mucking around. So they must have had a good... June
2: 79?
1: Yeah, we had a good store of songs. I remember Candio once again slotting in, I was in Brisbane at this point, with the commercial radio station 4OP's playlist. Let's Go, the first single was a song that was played on the station along with a few other Mm. kind of vaguely New Wave things like The Police, possibly Blondie by that stage. And that was okay. Like that was the acceptable face of New Wave is what I, I guess I'm saying. Uh, and no. I loved that song. I thought it was a great song too. It was,
0: it, Let's Go was a bigger hit here than it was anywhere else.
1: Well, the album did really well in Australia too, didn't it? Also produced by Roy Thomas Baker.
2: This album was huge. Uh, got to number three in the US, number seven in Australia, mm. but only number 30 in the UK and... You usually expect that these kind of new wave post punk bands are going to be huge, you know, at least somewhere in Europe, you know, France, the Netherlands, mm. uh, Scandinavia, or something. But to the best of my knowledge, the cars got nowhere.
1: It, it
0: didn't translate.
1: It no. was a bit of a trickier album and that didn't have as many hits in
0: it. There's so many moments that I like. Like, obviously, I like Let's Go, Double Life. I think it's that that was a single too and then after Double Life it kind of fades into a song called Shooby doo which which (laughs) Which is really strange which is really unusual and I think that this is where they really dip their toes into the new wave I think you don't
3: care
1: Well, that sounds like suicide to me. Yeah, uh, Shubie do. Uh, that sounds which,
2: like Sing Sing Sputnik to me. Which came yes. a lot later. <laughs> yeah, I know. But but, 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 but suicide but,
1: was a band. Obviously, Rick was a fan of because he produced them later. But uh, that song is quite odd. Even the way he, the vocal style, mm-hmm, and so the way he yeah. does is very like mm. suicide. I also liked the song Candy O because it was mm. kind of quite dark and had a kind of off feel. And um, somebody asked the two uh, singers, what who Candy O was or what it referred to, and Rick said it stood for obnoxious.
2: In terms of how deeply the song Let's Go kind of penetrated the Australian mainstream, at my year 10 um, social at the uh, boat sheds at Lake Wendaree in uh, Ballarat. I put on my best, um, well, it was a shirt that my parents had bought for me in Singapore. It was, it was one of those Commonwealth heads of government. Um. <laughs> so
1: it was a silk number. <laughs> Your parents have got a lot to really answer for, haven't they? <laughs> you
2: know, where all the leaders are dressed in the same, you know, Pacific Island kind of garb, quite loud, ill-fitting in a Western sense. So, you know, I kind of rocked up to... And you thought this was a good idea <laughs> to, to, to impress women. I was looking pretty smart, I remember let's go being played at the year 10 social and the girls from loretto college were there i was at an all-boys school which you had been to mark and uh yeah so and it sounded it sounded pretty good you know over the stereo there but the highlight i have to say of the evening was when my sharona came on and there was a kid in our class whose name was nick morona and (laughs) so it just it was his song
1: He's probably never enjoyed a night as much
2: No, that's since. right. That's right. So <laughs> half of the kids in Year 10, there might have been, you know, a hundred of us there in the middle of the dance floor jumping up and down going, Nick Marona. <laughs> so good that's, that's what boys at a Catholic school <laughs> did, did for fun at, at Year 10 socials.
0: <laughs> well, you can't go past My Shirena. My Shirena was classic. That is a good song too. Mm, yeah.
1: That is a good song. Um, can I also say I like Night Spots? which is kind of a bit of a new wavy thing yeah. as well. I think there's a lot of highlights on the other. Once again, it's
0: probably a little bit overlooked. Uh, and my favourite is Dangerous Type, the last song. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I thought that was really good. But i also like to highlight how much of a pop star Benjamin Orr was. By this stage. By this stage. Like when he sang Let's Go, mm. if you ever see the film clip, mm. he had these, these looks to camera. I just, I was in love. <laughs> he always reminded me of the drummer from Queen. Um, yeah, a little bit. He
1: a little looks bit a bit like him. Yeah. yeah. The same kind of blonde hair, great hair. And sort of doe eyes, mm. you
0: know. But he just he just had a great voice and a great look about him.
1: Yeah, he, well, once again, he, he could have been the lead singer in another band, probably.
3: She's a lot like you. The
0: She's a lot like you. What did you think of Candy? Uh
2: There are definitely songs on it that I like. I think there are kind of flat spots since second I Second album syndrome? Second album syndrome, yeah. The difficult second um, album? After Let's Go, I really like Let's Go, um, but the three songs after that seem well. I I call them their Eagles trilogy. Um, they're, <laughs> wow, they're very mainstream and very Hush. forgettable. So they get a bit more experimental as the album progresses, as you're saying. Shooby doo Dangerous Type, Night Spots. Overall, it feels pretty similar to the first album.
1: Well, they're leftover songs to me, yeah. To some yeah. degree, yeah. I think a couple of the songs were still, you know, earlier. Versions that they'd been playing or whatever, but to yeah. do an album once again, like we say often, a year later, mm, yeah, yeah, it's not bad after the pressure of the first album being such a huge success. Yeah, too. no,
2: absolutely. And as far as cover versions of Cars songs go, "Let's Go" was covered by um, Alvin and the Chipmunks <laughs> on the Chipmunk Punk album. That I remember you I have. remember the <laughs> Chipmunk Punk. Now album. that's something
1: you've got to drop in here, Graham, because that is. That's gold.
2: <laughs> I do not have the chipmunk punk album. I, be, I remember you buying it. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. This is slander. Yeah, I think you had that shirt on when you when you yeah. went to buy it.
0: Your mum said you looked very
2: handsome. <laughs> yeah, fetching was the term she used.
0: <laughs> I remember the chipmunk punk album at the time because it featured things like um, Refugee by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Yeah. There, there was hardly any punk album thing at all. It was just street music at the time, they? didn't yeah.
1: play Submission or
2: no. no More Heroes, nothing? No. Um, I, think I,
0: can... so. I think they did Bodies.
2: <laughs> did they do Bodies? Wouldn't that be right? Uh, you, you May Be Right was on it, Crazy Little Thing Called you Love. You May That'd Be Right, be the, Billy,
0: the Billy Joel song.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it was a broad church, New Wave yeah. in 1979, anything qualified.
2: Yeah, but I love what inspired the Chipmunk Punk album, which was Call Me by Blondie being played at the wrong speed. <laughs> and, and the DJ to kind of cover his embarrassment said that it was the Chipmunks' latest single. <laughs> I mean, he's joking, I guess. But but that was the, ins- that or, was was the, the yeah. or was he? Or was he? Yeah, but that yeah that was the uh, starting point for that. So the cars were covered by everyone from the Chipmunks to Nirvana. That's right. that's
1: pretty much credibility. Only went four times platinum in the states, though. So a, a bit of a letdown after the previous success. Yeah, not as much of a hit. It
2: was a bigger hit in the short term, mm. but in terms of its longevity,
1: oh, look, I, I still think it's got legs. I listen to it now, and, and, it, and I think it's got more to it than probably was given credit at the time. But, but yeah, comparing it to the first album is pretty much an impossible task to back that up.
0: As I said, I really liked it. I now think of it as better than the first album.
1: Does it slot into your pool job days at all? Was it was it part of the soundtrack? No, it wasn't, that, that no age, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. This
0: was 79. This was, see, Timber yard Timber, this was the Timber the yard. years. Timber lumber years. It
2: should be a TV show. The lumber yeah. years. <laughs> Have you got a snappy phrase for, for, for Graham's swimming pool years? Not uh, as a, a swimming pool guard, was that what? what Lifeguard. Lifeguard. No, no, <laughs> it wasn't like,
0: <laughs> I used to, I was a swimming pool attendant. I used to um, dose the pools up with drugs. <laughs> Check the chlorine levels. <laughs> yeah. Pick up coins off the bottom, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> the occasional floater. <laughs> I was gonna say that and I thought no, I won't put that in his podcast. <laughs> oh, Graham.
2: <laughs> Ooh, but let's get back to the lumber years.
0: Are you guys familiar with a show called The Midnight Special? Mm, yeah. It. it was usually hosted by Wolfman Jack, ah, um, if you I'm remember. familiar him. with the Wolfman. Well, Wolfman Jack was probably the only mythical creature that <laughs> hosted a music show, as far yeah, as it was I know. real, man. <laughs> they couldn't have the show while there was a full moon. But um, the cars were asked to host The Midnight Special and it was usually full of people like, you know, Jackson Brown and mm. Linda Ronstadt and people like that. Well, those are the new wave artists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the cars said... That They didn't want to uh, do it unless they could remove all talking in between songs because there was a lot of cheesy talking and introducing Mm. bands and whatever. And uh, the Midnight Special people agreed to that, which surprised them because they actually thought that they were trying to get out of doing it. Mm. But they did it and they only put on bands that they liked. So they had Suicide, the Records, uh, and they played videos of Iggy Pop, Lenny Lovitch and M doing pop music. Wow. Uh, I saw an interview with the Cars and... 2000 I think it was not long before Benjamin Orr passed away and um, in that they were all once again people of that age distancing themselves from New Wave but just looking at that lineup they mm. put on their midnight special, they were aware that they were a part of something.
1: Sorry, oh, absolutely, yeah. they were.
3: I mean,
0: yeah. I, I can't see how they wouldn't have been. Mm. I just thought that was quite interesting that they had control of a, of a show. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, you when, know, you, when you've gone however
1: many times platinum, I guess you do have some clout by then, don't you? Mm. They became pop stars almost immediately. Like big, yeah. big time pop stars. Mm. So mm. you know why not? Um, are we moving on
0: to the third album now? Yeah. Well, this we're into 1980 now. Mm.
1: year again, uh, August 1980, Panorama. Okay, I've been dying to
0: ask you guys, what did you think of Panorama?
1: I think it's my favourite of their Mm. albums. I I think it's really interesting, really experimental. It kind of bombed, relatively speaking, um, compared to the other Mm. first two albums. Um, But I think it stands up really well. Mm, I think so too. There's some real kind of Devo sounding stuff in there. Uh, very much so. I mean, I think you know they pretty much reinvented themselves as Devo. Tracks like "Up and Down," "Running to You," "Give Me Some Slack," which was a single, sound like they want to be Devo, to me. Yeah,
0: I, th- I think they they they'd heard Devo stuff and
1: thought, oh, they'd be aware of them before yeah. that. I mean, Devo, yeah. I guess "Freedom of Choice" came out in '81. So Devo so hasn't had the before, massive success, yeah. But, yeah, but they would—they'd know the first two albums very well. Hmm.
2: The induction, Graham—the induction, of, <laughs> the induction. <laughs> of the cars into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame last year. Uh, Greg Hawks, as part of his dedication, he gave a shout out to uh, Devo and Kraftwerk for being so good. Yeah. So he certainly wasn't shy about acknowledging their influence on. Well, certainly, on on certainly him, on him anyway.
0: This is why I always say the new wave credentials are pretty much down to Greg Hawkes. It
2: was still a big hit,
0: got to number
1: five, but I think it kind of peaked and disappeared quite quickly because, apart from "Touch and Go,"
0: uh, which is a great song, it's a great song, isn't it? It's it's an odd song.
2: Yeah, you like "Touch and Go." I do. It's um, my least favorite of their entire.
1: This back this catalog. is the oh, really? song that sounds like "Spirits in the Material World." Yeah. Police, it's got that same,
0: is it the off-kilter off, off kilter sort of... Well, the bass and drums are in 5-4 Yeah. and everything else is in 4-4.
1: Four, four, but it's got that keyboard, it... that two-note keyboard thing mm. on it, which sounds to me like the Police track. Yeah, it,
0: it is It is like that. Yeah.
1: yeah, and it has been compared to that and it was released a year before the Police track, mm. so maybe Sting was aware of that. But it's a really odd song, yes, 5-4 and the others are playing in 4-4. We'll play so yeah. It's, but the chorus is straight up pop, but the verse is really quite odd.
2: I think they somehow managed to fuse a good song and a terrible song together. You don't um, like the chorus? <laughs> <laughs> you picked the right part of the song. <laughs> because I think the um the title track, the opening song, mm. is really brave mm. for they had previously made quite safe choices in terms of how they opened their albums and they mm. opened panorama with a song that goes for about six minutes which sounds quite a bit like it was inspired by suicide who uh rick okasek had just produced like Mm. just like a few months earlier he produced their their second album so i think that song is great and then the beginning of touch and go i'm thinking okay you know this is this is going to be great and then Mm. it goes into something that just seems very bland I think it's a
1: very distinct verse-chorus song. Mm, they almost mm. do seem like two separate songs, yeah. but really brave and, and quite difficult. Yeah,
2: I just don't think it works, to be honest, and uh, you know, obviously I'm, I'm going to be outvoted on that. But, uh, yeah, so it's interesting that that you guys really like that song. Mm-hmm. I like yeah. the whole
1: album. I, I found that it's aged really well, and I probably didn't hear it at the time. I'd, I'd say I pretty much passed over this. By 1980, I wouldn't have wanted to listen to the gun. Don't tell me no.
0: I had the first three albums and then I stopped. I didn't have the next one at all.
2: Were you a big vinyl buyer? Or, or, okay, because you had a job working in a lumberyard. (laughs) Well, yeah, there was a lumberyard, but by the time Panorama came along,
0: (laughs) I was entrenched in pools. You were, you were knee-deep in pools? I was knee-deep in pools at this point, yeah.
2: <laughs> Things were looking up. Yeah. You're quite yeah. a flippity gibbet, weren't you, Graham? <laughs> a
0: dilettante. <laughs> right. I went from job to job.
1: He'd try anything to keep <laughs> his vinyl addiction going.
0: I didn't know what I wanted to do. <laughs> no.
1: Um, yeah, as I said, I, I think it's my favourite. Didn't quite scale the heights in terms of sales, but um, I don't think it even charted in Australia. Uh,
2: Yeah, actually it uh, reached number 19 in Australia. Did it really? And uh, yeah, to get to number five in the States as quite quite a peculiar album, not having a huge poppy single to go with. The critics weren't kind. The Boston Phoenix, you know, like their own hometown newspaper, said this year's model is a lemon. So, Ooh, the car analogy That's, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's love the car it's Not bad. Not yeah, bad. no, that's right. <laughs> You'd approve, Mark. I'd like that. Um, to me, it actually sounds relatively similar to the previous two, although wow. although quite quite experimental at times, definitely. I
1: mean, you've got to admit that there's Devo songs on
2: there. There's some mm, yeah, kind of yeah, wacky yeah, sounding yeah.
1: stuff. There's no big killer chorus single. You'll have
3: to be so hard to get.
2: But I do think there is quite it's a bit of relatively straightforward. Rock and roll with synths on top on
1: that album. What do you think about my idea that if they'd released this first, they would have had a lot more cred? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like yeah. Their, break, their first album in '78 is this, and then they yeah. progressed to O and then the third but,
2: album. But yeah, it. but they would have been seen as being kind of arch sellouts for yeah. having abandoned their first album. Sale Rather than the as way opposed around. to <laughs> as opposed
0: to Heartbeat City <laughs> yeah, a few yeah, years they later. They can't win. Patrick. They <laughs> no, can't that's win right. with you. That's right. Oh, I'm going but to agree
1: the, with um, Graham and more on this one. Yeah, mm. I do
0: like Panorama. I think if the Boston Phoenix had gotten into the car, settled into those comfy leather seats <laughs> <laughs> and gone for a drive around the back. <laughs> I'm feeling yeah. really yeah, left on. out on the metaphor front. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've got a page full of car metaphors. That's all I've come with. <laughs>
1: Can I just throw in another Rick quote about, uh, I may have been this album but I think they were asked about whether they would ever work with Brian Eno. I don't know if you saw this quote. And Rick said, no, we have enough oblique strategy already. (laughs) If we had any more, we'd be on a space capsule headed to Mars. (laughs) (laughs) That was kind of cool. That's that that wry kind of thing, Patrick, Mm -hmm -hmm. that I don't think you get from the lyrics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Didn't
2: often get into the lyrics of the songs, but I like that he does it in interviews. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, fair enough. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so... I'm I'm going to go as I said with this. If this had been the first album, that w- they would have garnered a lot more, a lot critical, more cred, yeah, you know, praise be. and so on. I think it's it's my favourite of these albums that we're talking about anyway.
0: Before we go on to shake it up, yes, I just wanted to mention that they bought a recording studio in Boston around this time. In, in Boston around this time, because
1: they'd been using Roy Thomas Baker still for these first three albums, right? Mm. Mm. Yes. Okay. I
0: had a look on Google Maps. It's right next to. Um, Fenway Park? Yep, yep. The baseball ground. Right next to Fenway Park. And it was an existing studio where Aerosmith recorded Dream On and all that, their, their first album. But they purchased it and they uh, called it Synchro Sound. And Cindy Lauper and Nanny's Nails recorded there. Wow. Romeo Void's Rick produced Romeo Void's Never Say Never. That was, oh, the EP. That was, that was, a, that was a big, right. big thing. Very good song. And it's also just around the corner from the Cheers bar.
2: <laughs> Which really exists? Yeah, there's oh, okay. actually exists there. As in the, the facade rather than the set for the show.
0: Well, I don't know. There was,
1: maybe there is a real barkle
0: Cheers. But yeah, basically they wanted a studio where um, everyone knows your name. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why I mentioned the studio is because that's where they recorded Shake It Up.
1: Aha, uh-huh, the fourth album, November yes. 1981. So once again, like most of our... Favorite bands have been very prolific in this period 78, 79, 80, 81. Yeah, it's not bad. Like I said, what were you doing? <laughs> mm. Sweet FA. The Cars are knocking out four albums. <laughs> the Stranglers are worth even more. So, you know, um, what do we think of Shake it, up? Shake, it up. Shake it Up? This is this is a bit of a departure, or if you like, a return. Could be. Mm, yeah. I'd say mm. probably a return to the a U-turn. Bit. if You will. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going
2: to walk out of this studio. If this this okay was a parallel path. Let me call sure. you a cab. That's it. <laughs>
0: um, as I said, I didn't have this at the time. I knew "Shake It Up" the single. Big and it hit. Was, it was it was a big hit here. Mm and Since You're Gone, but I hadn't heard of any of the other songs.
1: I was aware of it because I think it was part of the MTV kind of era. I think it became sort of pretty ubiquitous on Mm. TV, video shows. Reached number nine in the US, number 20 in Australia. Um, I think it's got a lot of good moments. I think they basically went, we need to have a hit album after the last one. We need to kind of get back onto the Mm. commercial horse. Having said that, you've, you've got three singles off it. Shake It Up, Since You're Gone, Victim of Love fourth one, which was a UK single only, Think It Over. But there's enough interesting stuff on here, like that song called This Could Be Love sounds like Bauhaus.
0: Oh, yeah. time.
1: The vocal styling and even the descending kind of bass, mm. you know, they're obviously influenced by, by a lot of what's going on. Um, A dream away sounds like Kraftwerk. I'm Not The One with a KCO beat is kind of a precursor to maybe Drive, which came later.
0: I'm Not The One is a, a song that amazed me. I thought that was fantastic.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and kind of hadn't heard it, right? Mm, yeah, and I hadn't heard it before, yeah. I think they, they were still doing experimental stuff. They're still doing The Cars, which is have your hits and then do some mm. weird other album stuff. Mm. And I think that's how they balance their whole career, really. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, That's definitely. what makes them kind of worthy of, of
2: a, the, a yep. you know, discussion. The vocal harmonies on I'm, I'm Not The One... Remind me of Neil Young, the round and round.
0: I thought the chord progression was like the Beatles.
2: It's a very kind of likeable song.
1: Yeah, I thought it was, as I said, a kind of something that was going to lead to some other things later. But as an album, I quite like it. I mean, it's very slick, the production on it's fantastic, it sounds kind of modern. And
2: there's, there's some kind of solid post-punk in there with uh, with Maybe Baby okay. At, at the end. Yeah, the rolling drums, edgy guitar riff, uh song title stolen from Buddy Holly. <laughs> so as <laughs> well, was Think It Over, there were two songs which share a title. The moment that kind of changed his life from childhood was hearing Buddy Holly. Is that right? So, yeah. Well, he kind of modelled his look a bit. The Road he? to Damascus. Didn't he? The drive to Damascus. Right, the road. The road's good enough.
0: (laughs) I was going to say, the good times roll, and Bye Bye Love were also old songs. Well,
1: he was an an old guy. Bye Bye Love was Everly Everly Brothers. brothers, That's
0: right. He was an an old guy. He seemed to. (laughs) <laughs> Take a lot of ideas from uh, <laughs> yeah. from yeah, the, yeah,
2: the late 50s. What's your stand on this album, Patrick? Uh, definitely some, some songs that I like. Uh, yeah, again, something like Victim of Love could be by Dire Straits and has that kind of shiny Dire Straits peak career early to mid-80s. So, yeah, again, not really for me. So, this wasn't what you wanted to hear in 1981? No, no. I, I mean, I like... Again, I like the song Shake It Up, and the weird thing about Shake It Up, I think, is again a kind of like a classic single, like really snappy. Mm. But Shake It Up was not as big a hit in the UK as Since You're Gone was. Oh, really? So Since You're Gone got to number 37 in the UK, and Shake It Up got nowhere in the UK. So I think they were completely ignored in the UK after the first album mm. i think they were crucified by the critics probably yeah. i mean you could paul weller included yes yeah. <laughs> well the um, the music press did whatever paul weller told them to do so <laughs> at the time yeah but i think they would have been seen in the uk as a bit plastic mm. and in the uk they already had the kind of shiny pop bands mm. so they kind of didn't need the cars with their very american slant on things it, mm. it's a very american suburban kind of perspective that the cars bring. Br- I think the cars the were
1: probably the first New Wave band Americans were exposed to on any scale.
2: Yeah, possibly. Because
1: they had that kind of skinny-tie look and that kind of quirky thing without being threatening or mm. dangerous.
2: Yeah, and You could yeah. put them
1: in a movie soundtrack, you could see one of their clips and kind of not be too off-put because Americans, remember, just didn't get punk
2: No, no or New Wave no.
1: at all and so I think no. the cars were an entree into that at least. yeah.
2: Yeah well, and I mean Devo complained that their record company just wanted them to sound like The Cars or yeah. wanted them to be as successful as The Cars. The Cars were the absolute template for new wave for new in America in, yeah. in the states. But
1: I think The Cars wanted to be like Devo a lot of the time as well <laughs> yeah, ironically. Right. That's, that's right. the weird thing about
2: yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Are we near the end? With all of these podcasts, it's always a question of where where do we stop? And Shake It Up was 1981. The next mm. album wasn't until 1984. Which
1: would have fit in. Hmm. And I had listened to it a few times. and um, It's good. I think it's a great album. They're talking about Heartbeat City. Yeah. And it's chock-a-block with hits. I think it had five top yeah. ten well, singles. Well, it had Drive on drivers. Drive is Drive was probably their biggest hit. Yeah. But five top ten US hit singles, It's it's probably it would be easily their biggest selling album, but we're not really going to talk about it. Mm. But it was produced by Mutt um, Lang, who did uh, Def Leppard's stuff and it's got, so and they Back moved. And Black, I think. Yeah, and yeah, well, lots of things. So they moved away from from uh, Roy Thomas Baker to a new producer after four albums and it, it has that sound and that touch that he had mm. and it actually sounds really, really now because people are trying to replicate that 80s sound. Mm-hmm. It's a quintessential 80s album. I know we're not mm. going to talk about it, but I still think it's worth Yeah, well, I may play
0: it. Drive.
1: Well have a, have a listen That's to the beautiful. whole album and you you'll, you'll be impressed with. It's the culmination of everything that the cars were probably mm-hmm. heading towards were driving to. Well
0: be, before we sum up, I just <laughs> I want to ask a question of our audience if I can. How are they going to answer this, Graham? Well oh. they will either send uh, send me a message, they can send <laughs> <or> a telegram. <laughs> they can send a stamped <laughs> addressed envelope. <laughs> Self-addressed. Envelope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and this is about the video for You Might Think, which is of Heartbeat City. And I don't know whether you guys remember the video at all. I do. Did it win the MTV award for best video of the a fly it in this? Won, it won the very first... Is that it? Yeah. Yeah, okay. It won the very first MTV video of the year. Ahead of Rocket. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I think Max, Max, I Max Headroom
1: you. may have featured in there as well.
0: <laughs> How many 80s references can we put into this? Um, That was
1: a car reference, actually. Oh, very
0: good. Wasted on you guys. I thought we'd stop doing that. No. no. (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping we'd finish with the (laughs) car references. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, uh, I don't quite know how I'm going to explain this, but um, when I saw the video for You Might Think in Brisbane, at the very end of the video, Rick O'Kasek lifts his fingers up to his glasses, and he did a little like a switch or something and then he put his hand back down and nothing happens now when i watch the video today when he does that he pulls his glasses off his face comes off and water pours out of his face out of his head now i want to know whether (laughs) i haven't been able to find the version that i've been that i remember and what i want from my our audience is (laughs) am am i just making things up here or did i actually see this is this the mandela effect or um did I'm sure that someone at some point thought the visual of water pouring out of Rico Kasich's face was probably a little bit much for MTV audiences at the time, and they didn't do it. Maybe it was in Australia; it was edited out. It, it could
2: have been just Australia as well. I think you're crazy, Grant.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I'm putting it out there. We can there, all agree on that. <laughs> I'm putting it out there to our audience. If you, anyone out there, remembers that scene from the video and remembers the very end where water doesn't pour out of his face, (laughs) I want to know because I'm not crazy. I'm I'm sure that at the time, (laughs) when he did that little thing with his glasses, I I was like, why did he do that? Like nothing happened. Except it did. (laughs) Except it did.
2: Well, it did now. So you think you might have seen the demo of the video clip? Yeah, I just
1: think I saw an edit. Mm. You think you're misremembering. Well, mm, I could be misremembering the, was it Was this the time you were working at the pool? Was it around that time?
0: When I was breathing a lot of chlorine. Yeah, and you were traumatised <laughs> <Yeah>. by
1: water, <laughs> possibly. <laughs> I'm just throwing it out there. You um, could be right. You could be right. Okay. Um, I've got one more quote from Rick that I'd like to throw in there because I think he's a really entertaining rock star because he's mm. kind of like a non-rock star mm. and he yeah. had this kind of look with the glasses mm. and the hair. And he said, I don't think I'm an entertainer. Some of my favourite bands never moved an inch.
0: <laughs>
1: I think that's brilliant. He's just like, I'm not doing anything. And in, in that is
3: doing yeah, something. Yeah, well,
0: bad. a lot of the criticism of the cars at the time was the fact that they were cold and, mm. and, and mm. not approachable. Icy, distant. You know, new wave. New wave, yeah. New mm. wave, yeah a very right. new wave. Once again, the Americans didn't really get that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, because cause they were kind of used to performers Absolutely. like David Lee Roth <laughs> jumping all over the place. Yeah. Mm. Well, you and, were
1: supposed to entertain and that's yeah. not what they did. So That's we, why I love them. we agree that they are a worthy addition to the uh, the post-punk discussion or do we not, Patrick? Uh,
2: I, I think they certainly were on occasion. They did kind of stray, for me, a bit too much into the rock band with synths on top a la Foreigner, playing Urgent or Van Halen playing Jump. Um, which both, is a great song. both of which are songs I like. So a little bit kind of faux New Wave. I mean, did Opportunists? they? Opportunists? A, a fraction, a fraction. Yeah. Okay. Um, you've kind of talked me around a little bit from my initial cynicism. Um, but, yeah, I do question whether they had genuine post-punk buy-in.
1: They don't come from a post-punk background. They, they weren't, uh, the doors weren't open for them by punk. They were there already. They would have been successful in any case, I think whether whether punk had happened or not. But they saw an opportunity, like The Police.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, Elliot Easton said that they were definitely inspired by the energy of the punk era, but he said he never really subscribed to New Wave and didn't really know what that was all about. He says, I've been playing guitar since I was a baby and uh, my roots are pretty deep. Uh, if anything, it was more just a strange turn of events that I would end up in a sleek, modern band like The Cars because my roots are in blues, country and folk. Mm. And that... It feels to me like there is a pretty solid mainstream kind of slightly conservative rock and roll kind of feel to the cars mm. beneath a kind of a sheen of experimentalism. There are certainly experimental songs and some, some, some great sounds and they were a fantastically coordinated and cohesive band and their songs, are, you know, they they were a great kind of package as an interesting pop band but I would put them at the kind of lower end of the scale of importance, you know, in the kind of post-punk um, framework,
1: I'm going to go with a quote from Greg Hawkes, the keyboard player. He said, "I regard our contemporaries as Devo, Talking Heads, and the Pretenders." That's so he sees it in a slightly different mm. way. But I I agree with you that they don't have that credibility and come from that background. But they were ready to go. They were on the you know they were there. The songs were there, and the opportunity came. They just tweaked their image a little bit. And they, at the time, they fit in perfectly, as I said, and they were the first ones to have major major success in the US with that kind of sound, which sounds dated now, but was very fresh and kind of raw in 1978.
0: You know, I think the cars are just as valid a new wave band as as any other. Um, They may have jumped on a bandwagon, but I think they proved themselves time and again. You know, they, they weren't afraid to experiment Uh, to seek out new sounds, and uh, they wrote and produced some of the great pop singles of that time. And uh, above and beyond all of that, they came up with this. (laughs) 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 That's the clicky eight notes. Finish on that.